0: Shit. Don't bullshit. 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 -bullshit. It's bullshit. 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 I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Bullshit. Where would we be without our safe, familiar American bullshit? Land of the free, home of the brave, the American dream. All men are equal, justice is blind, the press is free. Your vote counts. Business is honest. The good guys win. The police
1: are on your side. God is watching you. Your standard of living will never
0: decline. And everything is going to be just fine. Welcome to the Bullshit Filter, episode 94, recording this Saturday, the 7th of August, 2021, from lockdown in uh, Brisbane day, what is it, day seven, I think, of lockdown in Brisbane, Uh, maybe eight, I don't know, with me, joining me also from Brisbane, uh, the other side of, well, not that far away from me, actually, is uh, Brisbane's number one podcaster and uh, coffee roaster extraordinaire, uh, former lawyer and uh, sometime art dealer, uh, Trevor Bell. (laughs) <laughs> from the Iron Fist and the Velvet <laughs> Glove podcast. Welcome back to the Bullshit Filter TB Sheets. Thank you, Cameron, for the invitation to come back.
1: And actually, there's a slight inaccuracy in your intro. There, I'm not a former lawyer. I'm, I actually renewed my practicing certificate, Cam, back in January. Former, former
0: practicing lawyer. Yeah,
1: well, I am practicing
0: now. I'm uh, doing wait, some pro- okay. Tell I'm people why s- you yeah. Tell people why you're practicing now. What are you doing? I'm
1: doing some pro bono work for a little church group, Cameron. Cool. Just a harmless little activity. It's well, it happens to be called the Noosa Temple of Satan, but um, (laughs) and we're in the. You're you're lucky to get me because I am so busy at the moment. I've got a court case. I'm in the Supreme Court on Thursday, arguing for the right for Satanists in Queensland to enter into Queensland schools and teach Satanism. Is that right? um, Indeed. So I'm I'm up to my armpits in alligators just trying to get on top of all this, Cam. So I've taken aside a few hours just for you. You, you and the dear listener should feel very privileged.
0: And I thought I wasted my time with silly projects <laughs> a lot. So... This- this show is actually going to be about COVID conspiracy theories, but uh, just sidetracking for a second. <laughs> I didn't expect this. So the Church of Satan. I mean, uh, maybe you don't want to say this out loud before the hearing, but uh, mm. but do, do do they actually want to uh, preach in schools, or are they just trying to make a point?
1: Well, it's. It's a bit of both, really. I mean, in order to make the point, we have to want to. So under the Queensland law, there's an entitlement. It's quite unique in the world, really, where religious groups can come in and teach religion for an hour in a government school. And the Act simply says any uh, religious denomination or society can come in. And uh, so we didn't think that was a great law. So we thought, well, if we uh, attempt to do it, then they'll want to change the law. So you can be religious, you can be a Satanist and a secularist. So we're we're both of those things. And what would, it would be you interesting? Be,
0: what would you be teaching uh, in the schools? Sure. I, are you familiar with the
1: Book of Job?
0: I am. I love the Book of Job. It's one of my favourites. It's
1: it's 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 a. But it's become my favourite. I love the book of Job. There's so much in it. Actually, the role of Satan in the Bible, Cam, you should maybe do, uh, if you haven't already, um, you should do something on Satan because Satan arguably was really sort of a gatekeeper for God. He was sorting the wheat from the chaff and and he was like, yes, the the questioner, and he was kind of like a policeman for God Hmm. and he wasn't he wasn't against using entrapment just to check on people, to make sure they were really, uh, really uh, up to speed. So that really was the role of Satan as the questioner. And it, and when you read the Bible carefully, until you get to Revelation when everything just goes crazy. But mm. up until then, uh, he was really part of God's, police force, if you like, Mm. and it's only subsequent history that is painted in a bad bad light. Mm.
0: Yeah, my my recollection of the Book of Job, it's been a few years now since I've read it, but I read it Mm. [3] while I was uh, working on the film and and before that. I I did a series, I don't know if you know this, but about 13 years ago, uh, I think, I started a series called Cameron Reads the Bible, podcast series. Where it was just me reading the Bible, uh, very little commentary, just reading it straight because I figured people probably don't read it. And you got and it's fascinating. But the Book of Job, from my memory, is there's you know, God is like uh, saying, "Oh, this Job guy, he's the best. He just loves me the most. There's nothing anyone could ever do that would uh, get Job to not love me anymore." And uh Satan is like, mm, you sure about that? Uh and he goes, listen. God says, Listen, I tell you what, free reign, you you throw whatever you can at Job to see if you can break him, just for shits and giggles. Just and, don't kill him. Yeah. And Job and Joe and Satan goes down and basically just completely ruins Job's life. Mm. And God's like, nah, he still loves me. What else can you do? He just keeps showing shit at him. God's like, see, told you, can't break him. And uh, they just basically, uh, shits and giggles, ruined Job's life. Yes, but then at the end, um, Job
1: cursed the day he was born, but he didn't curse God. And as a result, he sort of passed the test in God's eyes. So he was restored with um, even more beautiful wives and more children and better crops and, and fatter and, and faster slaves. And on he went for a happy life, and that was Job. Happening. So, yeah. yeah, and so the actual word Satan uh, in Hebrew uh, meant adversary or opponent, and so in the Bible where there's references to the adversary or opponent, it was more as, a, as an adjective, if you like, but it became a proper noun um, uh, in the translations. And, yeah, it's easy to see that Satan is just the victim of a bit of bad
0: PR, <laughs> and we're all well, about fixing for- that. Forget COVID. Let's just talk about Satan for the next couple of hours. Cause that's yeah, great. we should. Yeah, we we'll yeah. do that sometime. All right, back to COVID. Mm. So <clears throat> uh, listeners of this show uh, will maybe recall that back in the dawn of COVID, March and April of 2020, Ray and I did a couple of shows. Uh, really, as always with this show, it's me trying to get my head around what's going on. Um, you hear lots of different stuff. Uh, lots of conflicting opinions, points of views, data, analysis of that data, and I use this show basically as a, as a an excuse to take uh, some time out to drill down into some of these things. And um, so, going into COVID, I was sceptical about whether and going into the original COVID shows, I was sceptical about whether or not the right thing to do was to shut down our economies for long periods of time. But as I drilled down into the data that was available to me uh, at the time, I think the first show we did in the 24th of March, 2020, I decided, yeah, no, this is the right thing to do. Based on everything that I could gather, that was the best decision. But here we are. It's uh, 15, 16 months later. And honestly, I have not... Bothered to drill down into a lot of the data over the last 15 or 16 months. I've just gone with what the medical authorities and our governments here in Queensland and Australia have told us we have to do. Not that I have a great deal of choice anyway. You've got to do what they tell you, you have to do. So just go on there. But, you know, I've seen over the course of the time on Facebook, in the media, uh, in, in discussions with uh, friends and uh, Italian tutors uh lots of conspiracy theories about what's going on, why it's going on, what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong, what we should be doing. And so this is now my opportunity to drill down into all of that. I've also podcast listeners and friends have been giving me sending me lots of emails and giving me lots of stuff and uh, this is my opportunity to drill down. Now, I know on your podcast you've been uh tackling this on a I think like on a weekly basis for the last 15 months with some of your former co-hosts. I had uh, a couple of co-hosts, was
1: and The Twelfth Man, and to my surprise it became apparent over time that they were quite anti-lockdown as this whole thing developed. And initially they were trying to argue that lockdowns just don't work. Um, And then it kind of morphed into, well, we can't be sure if they work, but in any event they're not worth the trouble, the sort of cost of the lockdown in terms of mental health, suicides, and economic sort of um, weighing up, uh, didn't add up. So, so I was actually involved in quite a lot of unpleasant conversations where we were even talking about whether lockdowns worked, and spent a lot of time, probably too much time, Cam, on that whole thing. So, my um, yeah, so my sort of take on all this because it's not just lockdowns; it'll be vaccines and. And it'll be masks and other sort of topics related to this. Is that we'll uh, and you wonder we are looking at sort of a running sheet and how to talk about this. And I I take the view well we're going to be talking about a lot of data. So where are we getting our data from? But the other thing that's struck me over the past few months is is people's literacy when it comes to analysing data and understanding probability and statistics and and comprehending data and the limits of it, I don't think people have done enough math at high school to really understand the dangers of data. So to some extent, it's it's not only which data are we choosing from hopefully reliable sources, but even the most reliable data and the most reliable source needs to be understood uh, in context and the deficiencies in it and... Um, So sometimes, you know, should we even be using data? So as an example would be, um, say with lockdowns, where I was having these arguments with these guys about whether lockdowns work. And the conversations would kick off with comparison of different countries and what they were doing and what the data showed in terms of the severity of the lockdown and the results they were getting. But at the end of the day, we should be starting with the science of how does this virus transmit, and we know it transmits between human beings, and therefore, if you reduce contact between human beings, you must necessarily reduce the transmission of the virus. And, and I sort of was continually arguing with them: if if you accept that that science is correct, then you have to accept that lockdowns work, and it doesn't matter what you've no. got in terms of data.
0: No? no? No, no, I disagree, um, b- b- and I'll get into this later. You're jumping mm. the gun a little bit uh, mm. in classic Ray, Ray fashion. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because, <Aww. laughs> and you came fully loaded with your Ray soundboard. Uh, Trevor Bell, inventor of the Ray soundboard, I, I always forget to, uh, that's the most important accomplishment when, when you finally pass off shake off your mortal coil on your gravestone will say invent, at the top of the list of your many achievements, they'll be inventor of the Ray Harris soundboard. Indeed I and, am, and I haven't I haven't had enough credit for that,
1: I have to say. No, I yeah, so, I, I,
0: I totally agree. And I don't think uh, I don't
1: think I don't think Ray was very happy with the soundboard at the end of the
0: day. He loves it now. Yeah, oh. see he loves it. Uh, Because it means he has to do less work. Like 90% of the talking on our podcast now that involve Ray is the soundboard, and, he, you know, it's easy. No, when you say uh, whether or not something works, you have to be able to define work. Yes. What What do you mean by works? Yes. And it is rather complex. There's a lot in it, and after spending the last week, inordinate number of hours in the last week trying to get my head around this, uh, the more I worked on it, the the more complex I realized it it really is in some ways. Mm. but I'm going to try and 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 make sense of it as we go. Mm. I want to start though by talking about the social contract mm. because this is this I think is the most important thing I want if, if people listen to this at all and get anything out of this, I've been involved in a few debates about this uh, in the last year on the the Facebooks and in in real life it's it's you've got to accept the social contract. It doesn't matter, listeners. uh, I'm not talking to you when I say this, but listeners out there, it doesn't matter what you think about COVID and our response to it as a society. Really, you have chosen to live in a society that comes with yes. You've that comes with. Did you have a choice? Yeah. Yes. If you're an adult, not a
1: free will choice, but really, you're you're born into it. You're different. A choice. You're in the society, like it or not.
0: No, you're born into it, but you could go and move to the outback, outback Queensland. Yeah, I've can. got my mate. My mate Dion lives, uh, you know, out near bloody whoop whoop in the middle of Barcaldine, 200 kilometers from Barcaldine. As he likes to say, it's a two it's a two hour drive to the nearest McDonald's. Yeah, but um, he still has to pay taxes and all the rest of it. Like, so yeah, he- but no one gives a shit if he doesn't wear a mask because he yeah. it's just him and his wife and some cows, yeah. right? Uh, sheep, really. You You can extract yourself from society if you want to. You can go and live in the middle of nowhere. But if you've chosen not to do that, if you've chosen to stay in a society, then that's what you've chosen to do. And living in a society comes with benefits, which is why we choose to do it, and responsibilities. That's the part of it people don't like to talk about. That's the social contract. You get some stuff, but you have to give up some stuff, which means giving up. You know, the the extreme version of what you think your rights may be. One of those responsibilities is to protect the health and well-being of the people in the community. I don't give a shit if you think uh, speeding doesn't kill. If you try and drive 100 kilometers an hour through a school zone, it doesn't really matter what your personal opinion is on speeding and your right to speed in a car you're going to get arrested and you're going to get penalized because we don't give a shit what you think you can and can't do. That's the social contract. I don't care if you don't think raping uh, someone is a bad thing to do. If you think it's in your rights to be able to rape someone or hold them hostage or kill them, we don't give a shit as a society because as a society we've decided, eh, we're not big fans of that anymore and you can't do it. So it doesn't, mm. it doesn't matter what you think <laughs> it is. So this gets down to the people who are marching in the streets, protesting, not wearing masks, I have a right to protest, to do this. No, actually, you don't. So shut the fuck up. You live in a society. You chose to live in this society. One of the responsibilities that comes with living in a society is when society decides through our elected officials that you can't do something, you can't do it. Without facing consequences. You can do it, mm. but you're going to face consequences, right?
1: Mm. Cam, this comes to the essence of of the of being a human being. Like we got to the position we're in through cooperation and that social contract. Um, we are that social sort of primate and that's led to our success. So this sort of... Uh, uh, desire for a libertarian lifestyle, where every man's for himself and you uh, do whatever you like, whenever you like, sort of ignores what really got us to our civilization in its present state. Hmm.
0: It's it's a crock of shit. And look, I'm a big fan of Ayn Rand. I, I've read The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged countless times over the last thirty years. Uh, I've read all of her letters. Uh, I've read all of her minor works. I'm a big fan of her because she's a she's a philosopher, and she I think she had some great ideas. I don't agree with all of her ideas, and but this sort of extreme uh, iron randyism that the libertarians like to clutch onto is a crock of shit because they want their cake. They want their cake, and they want to be able to eat it too. They she want never really freedom.
1: recognized. She never really recognized that society had provided stuff that that these sort of champions of free enterprise were relying on. She didn't recognise the roads had been built, the police force was there so the factories wouldn't be raided. Um, All that sort of infrastructure that previous generations had provided and were leaving for future generations, she never recognised that sort of um, uh, infrastructure from society.
0: It's a big gap, and it was a big gap in her thinking and writing. And it's a big gap in a lot of these libertarian types today. You know, it's yes, as and I wrote about this in the Psychopath Epidemic. Uh, you know, I don't care who you are, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett. Uh, if you had to grow your own food and provide your own security and make your own clothes and get your own materials to build your own house and do your own medical care and all of that kind of stuff, you're not not building Berkshire Hathaway or Microsoft or Apple. I don't care how smart you are, what kind of a visionary you are, what kind of work ethic you have, it just ain't going to happen because you need all of that infrastructure there to give you the time and the space to go out and be an entrepreneur and a visionary. And we want entrepreneurs and visionaries, but they exist within... The constructs of the society that they operate in, and they rely upon, and we and that just doesn't get um, articulated enough in the Americanized uh, mythology around the self-starter, do-it-yourself, self-made man or woman kind of uh, mythology, right?
1: Mm. I think the example I've been using for that lately is the guy who invented the printing press. Which you'd have to say was an invention at least equal to some of the Johannes IT Gutenberg. stuff. Yes, uh, never became the equivalent of today's billionaire because there wasn't the same setup of civilization to distribute and and take advantage of things and to multiply and and leverage. So that has to be recognised by modern day uh, entrepreneurs.
0: On the contrary, like the printing press exploded when he invented it. They ended up mm. everywhere across Europe within a couple of years, mm. but uh, they were all became his competition. Mm. And he didn't, uh, and, and his original investors in the printing press operation that produced the Gutenberg Bible took him to court and won the rights to even that from him. So he ended up broke and destitute and uh completely, you know, completely a completely po- podcaster screwed. like a podcaster <laughs> Trev. like the guy I'm, just, I'm just, I don't know who this would be but the guy that uh, invented the first podcast network and uh you know co-founded uh, the first Australian podcast and, and and you know 15 16 years later gets no credit no no one pays him no one gives him anything you know you think you get ripped off for inventing the ray soundboard you know, motherfucker I invented podcasting where's my check you make money Aww. from your podcast. <laughs> you better get the one sound. I've got a few, but that was just the most appropriate. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So, look, anyone who's listened to this show, listened to me over the years knows that I, I don't trust any governments I'm not here as uh, representing Mr. Government. I don't like governments. I don't trust governments of any sort, left, right, up, down. doesn't matter. I'm not a Liberal voter. I'm not a Labor voter. I'm not a Greens voter. I don't trust any elected official or political party. I think they're all rife with psychopaths to varying degrees. But like it or not, that's the world we live in. I don't like capitalism. But I'm a capitalist by by nature. I have to be. I would much rather we lived in a Star Trek advanced form of communism, but we don't. So I have to be a capitalist uh, in order to survive. That's the world that I live in. We have a government. People elected the government, whether you like it or not. That's beside the point. Whether you think COVID is real or the government's corrupt, it doesn't really matter. You can talk about it to your heart's degree, and I encourage that, and that's what we do on podcasts, right? We talk about it, we analyse it. Well, you can you can push for change, you can recommend that people elect someone different, and you can push for policies, you can lobby for stuff. But at the end of the day, the government's the government, the government make the laws, and if you think you can go off and do your own thing, march in the streets, not wear a mask, and tell the police to get fucked when they tell you to put a mask on, you should be, A, not only expecting to face consequences but the rest of us are going to be pretty fucking pissed that you're making it harder on the rest of us who are trying to just buckle down and get through this i had a discussion with a guy on facebook and he said no single he's a mate of mine good guy too he said no single uh, australian citizen is responsible for what's going on here it's all the government and it's all big farmer blah blah and dude if you go out and march in the streets and not wear a mask and you you lead to the spreading of the virus, which keeps us in lockdown further, which leads to the economy suffering further and people losing jobs, et cetera, et cetera, then, yeah, I think the majority of us have a right to get really fucking pissed at anyone who does that because we're just trying to knuckle down and get through this as quickly as possible. So be prepared to face our wrath is what I'm saying. If you think you can just go off and do whatever the fuck you want. Okay that's my first You really rant. you
1: really took your angry pills this morning Ian.
0: <laughs> eh, I'm not angry. I'm just telling I'm just telling it how it is. I don't get angry. Don't have it in me. Yeah, me I'm a nice guy. Okay, I'll
1: just push back a little bit kind of. But if you Jesus. look at say the capital riots where if people truly be- believed for example that uh that the election was stolen then they are freedom fighters. Like if those people truly believed uh, what they were saying, then kind of what they were doing was a legitimate act in their mind. So part of the problem is that these people genuinely believe that uh, COVID is a hoax or most of its effects are, are beaten up and exaggerated and that the governments are tyrannical dictators and therefore the actions they're taking are not only for themselves but to restore a freedom and democracy that they think um, the world should have. And so to some extent part of the problem is that they, while we would look at it and go they're being selfish, in their minds they would go they're a freedom fighter (laughs) to some extent. You know what I mean? Like their, their motivations are not necessarily selfish asshole. though it looks like it to us, it could actually be their motivations are a bit better than that.
0: Well, look, I think there's a range of motivations for people to do this, and I think there's a big difference between people storming the capital and people marching in the streets not wearing masks and people just mar- walking down the street and not wearing masks and uh, real armed revolution. Uh, Fidel Castro or, or, or Lenin uh, and Trotsky and Stalin Um, or or even the U.S. Revolution, we're talking big difference in behaviors and motivations, ending government oppression and saying I don't have to wear a mask because I have a right not to wear a mask during a pandemic. Vastly different things. I think yes, there are some people who think this is government oppression. There are some people who think it's their religious uh, uh, duty to uh, be able to do whatever the fuck they want to do because Jesus tells them to, or Satan in your case. Uh, there are there are people who just think that the lockdowns are actually doing more harm than they're doing good and they want to protest that. I don't think those people are necessarily wanting to overthrow the government, the people marching in the streets. I don't actually see them taking up, arm, take, taking up arms and marching on Parliament House.
1: No, I don't either, but I'm just saying... I'm not so much angry at those people as just scratching my head as to how do I get through to them uh, because I think they're stupid and don't get it. So I kind oh, of
0: toning oh, exactly down the
1: the, yeah, I'm sort of toning down their selfish pricks sort of feelings and more of and, and many of them are, let's face it, but there's a significant proportion who are just misguided, just don't get it and don't understand it. But they
0: will still face the wrath of the people, right. Yep. If they exacerbate an already terrible situation, whatever their yeah. motivations are, be mm. prepared to face the wrath of the people. Now, mm. as and I didn't mention this on your show the other day, but I also think there's a high degree of psychopathic behaviour involved in a lot of this sort of stuff too, particularly the guy who flew from Sydney to Ballina knowing that he was infected with the Delta variant. Then his air hostess girlfriend drove down from Brisbane to Ballina across the New South Wales border, picked him up. They drove back into Queensland and then walked around, partied around without masks on for uh, a week or two before they were picked up. Clearly psychopathic behaviour. Psychopaths, by definition, think that they're above the rules, they're superior to everyone else, they know better, they deserve better, they can do whatever the fuck they want. Uh, now, does it doesn't, like there's a scale, psychopathic behaviour, if you do the PCLR test is on a sliding scale. I'm not necessarily saying these people are at the top of the psychopath scale, but they're somewhere. People who think that they can do whatever the hell they want because and this guy wasn't plotting a revolution. He just wanted to get out of Sydney and go and party with his girlfriend up in Queensland where we were not in lockdown at the time. To me, that's clearly psychopathic behaviour. And I think a lot of these people marching in the streets, being dickheads when approached by the police. Um, Or, you know, a friend of mine told me a story the other day. He was getting into his apartment building in Sydney and a construction worker who was doing some work uh, in the building uh, tried to get in the lift with my friend. Friend will remain nameless. My friend said, oh, mate, uh, the the, the construction worker wasn't wearing a mask. My friend said, hey, mate, uh, you may not know it, but we're in the middle of a lockdown. you got to wear a mask. The guy said, yeah, yeah, whatever, mate. And my friend said, no, no, seriously, you you need to wear a mask. And the guy goes, oh, fuck you, you asshole!" And my mate says, well, you put a mask on, I'll have you evicted from the building. And the guy was like, you fucking not fuck this one, and stormed off out of the thing. And my mate followed him and said, well, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to get my fucking mask, you fucking asshole." And he said, good, just make sure you do that. So guys like that, uh, to me, plain and simple, psychopathic behaviour. And I think we should be tracking all of these people and testing them for psychopathic <laughs> behavior and putting them on the psychopathic watch list, which is one of my next projects. No, it, right, yeah. no, but we need this. I say this in the book. We need to identify who the psychopaths are in society hang, hang and on. we need to keep an we should eye. Be eye tr- you're serious. We should I be am tracking. These,
1: we should yeah. be tracking these people.
0: Psychopaths are like pedophiles. They <laughs> there's a condition in their brain, they're broken, they're malformed. I'm not saying we put them in jail. I'm not saying that we, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, prevent them from living normal lives. But we keep an eye on them because psychopaths are the ones that do the most danger in society. The one, two, three percent of population that rank highly on the psychopathic checklist are the cause of most of the damage in society, by my estimation. And we need wow. to take it seriously. We put we put you know pedophiles convicted pedophiles on a watch list not their fault that yeah. they're pedophiles they're born that way right yeah but they're convicted of a
1: crime so just just being a psychopath running around not putting your mask on in a lift we want to that's a crime start tracking people that's a crime well, well we don't. We don't track people who, who commit every crime. Like that's a misdemeanor. That's not a crime. That's just a slap on the wrist. For goodness sake,
0: it is now. But right. it's the fact that they're psychopaths. If they're, today they're not putting a mask on and left. What are they doing yeah. next week? What are they doing next year?
1: He just might be just a selfish guy. He's just might be. Yeah, I think this. I think you've. I think you've.
0: Get him to a psychopath test and we'll find out. <laughs> Anyway, let's get into facts. So, on the twenty fourth of March, twenty twenty, on Bullshit Filler sixty five, our first COVID show, when the US was at seven hundred deaths, based on the data I had available to me, then I predicted that there would be about two and a half to five and a half million people infected in the US at that stage, and that there would be between twenty to fifty thousand American deaths within the next few weeks. Everyone said I was crazy. A month later, the US had 53,000 deaths. Uh, in Australia at the time, we had seven deaths. I predicted that we would have ninety to 100,000 infected at that stage and that there would be a 1,000 Australian deaths within the next month. In fact, we didn't hit 900 deaths until October 2020, and we're still below 1,000, even though the numbers have been rising in the last couple of weeks. 925 as of a couple of days ago, but I think we've added probably five or ten since then. Um, So, if anything that tells me that, you know, it's very hard to predict what's going to happen with this stuff because every country is different for a whole bunch of reasons. There are a whole bunch of, there are different uh, age uh, demographic breakdowns in countries, different issues with uh, border control, different issues with uh, levels of poverty, access to health care, etc, etc. And you know, I want to make the point that as with all of these shows that I do, you know, my intention isn't to to debunk necessarily or disprove anything. I try and start tabula rasa from a blank slate. I, I'm trying to educate myself, ask myself, okay, what do I want to know? And, and then go about trying to figure out answers to questions. And I'll tell people the answers that I come up with and why I come up with them and, I'm sure you'll have your own inputs on that as well. But to me, again, with most of these things, it comes down to using having an approach to using epistemology and heuristics with these sorts of things. How do we know what is most likely to be true? How do we determine what truth looks like or how we get to truth? It's the epistemology side of it. And then once we've done that, the heuristics part of it is, who do I turn to to help me decide what's likely to be true in this particular scenario or this particular field, because I can't be an expert in everything. In fact, I'm not an expert in anything. So I need to turn to experts, but I need to know which experts I'm turning to. That's one of the problems
1: in this whole COVID thing I've found is experts on either side diametrically opposed. That's just surprised me at the level and, you would hear statistics or theories come from people that sounded um, completely crazy and then you'd look up their credentials and they seemed to be an epidemiologist of some standing. So that's one of the things to come out of this for me was how our, our medical experts could be so far apart on, on ideas of what was happening. It's one of the hard parts to deal with in this whole thing
0: yeah it is very challenging and I don't think it's that unusual though. I think it doesn't matter what subject you're talking about there are always going to be qualified experts that disagree because that's how science works. Science works by disagreement, challenging ideas, testing ideas so it doesn't mean like there are people out there who genuinely believe that uh, you know the the big bang theory is probably not the correct theory that einstein's theories on relativity are probably not correct there are, there are some of the most uh, well established scientific theories still have people you know highly qualified professionals in in that domain that are skeptical and are pushing alternative theories we always are in that situation i think what's different between this And your regular run-of-the-mill scientific debate is everyone's coming out of the woodworks and taking a position on this, and they're being very vocal about it. And so it seems like it's much more contentious than these things normally are. But if you look at the debates around climate change or whether or not cigarette smoking kills, et cetera, et cetera, over the last 30 years, there's always been a wide range of scientific debate. And it gets blown up by the media. They go, well, look, there's debate. And my position is, well, yeah, of course there's debate. That's how science works. That's not, that's not surprising to me that there's debate. What we have to look at is what is the consensus between professionals that are active in their field? That's the only way we get to determine what is most likely to be true. Would you agree?
1: Yes, you'd have to. I mean, if there's a – it's like climate science. I don't know the the ins and outs of the actual warming process, but if 97% of scientists say that's the case, i just have to go with it. Like I don't have the time to figure it out myself.
0: Exactly. So when people email me, as they do constantly, going, look at this guy, he's a scientist and he says X, I'm like, I don't give a fuck. What this guy says or who he is doesn't matter. Because a, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a nuclear physicist. I'm not a climate change scientist or a geologist or a botanist or anything. I mean, I'm not even a gynecologist. But if you come and pull your pants down, I'll take a look. But it, it, it doesn't matter what this guy says. What is the consensus? Don't tell me what fringe scientist X, Y, or Z says. Doesn't matter. He could be the greatest genius ever. He could be Einstein. It doesn't matter until the rest of the scientific community get on board because Mm. because until that point, he's just a voice in the wind, right? Anyway, look, here's the agenda. We're half an hour in and we haven't even started, but here's the agenda. And this is going to be a multi-episode arc, I think. Um, What's going on around the world with COVID today? How many cases? Is it improving or getting worse? Uh, What are the deaths like, improving or getting worse, vaccination rates around the world? Then I want to look at lockdowns. Do they work? How do we measure that? How do we define that? If not lockdowns, then what approach should we be taking and why that approach and what evidence that it would be any better? Vaccines, do they work? How do we measure that? If not vaccines, then what approach and why that approach and what evidence that that approach would be a better approach? Scepticism. Should we believe the governments and the medical authorities? And if not, why not? And if not, who should we trust? And why should we trust them? Who's behind the recent protests, particularly in Australia? What's their agenda? Then I want to drill down on some of the recent stories that people have sent me or that I've seen on Facebook. Uh, The PCR test was withdrawn supposedly by the CDC recently due to false positives. True or false? India, 71% of the population in India apparently already have signs of COVID antibodies, but half the population is dead. What do we make from that? Is the whole threat uh, overblown? Is the IFR rate way too high? The CFR rate way too high? Invermectin, good or bad? What should we be thinking about things like indovectin is a big conspiracy theory. Pharmaceutical companies, is this all about big pharma making profits? Uh, that's basically the outline, the agenda that I sketched out for myself, the questions that I wanted to answer. What do you think about that, t- Well, I, I signed up for one Other podcast,
1: way. not 25. That's, that's just all I want to say.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's welcome to the world of working with me. Uh, sorry, you're in <laughs> for the long haul. This is going to be the Yalta series t- the part Yol- two. Yeah, I, listened, I got through Yalta. I survived Yalta. Hopefully I can survive COVID with Cam. Yeah. Uh, you can do as many as you want or you don't <laughs> want. And I intend to get a lot of guests in. I intend to get some scientists in, epidemiologists. We'll get some people in that will help us drill down on stuff that's confusing. All right, let's 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 start it and see how far we get with this one anyway. What's going on around the world today? So the cases, improving or getting worse? Well, obviously getting worse. Um, Delta has really been blowing up the number of cases Uh, It's the third or fourth wave for many countries. Cases at the moment, well, a couple of days ago when I looked anyway, 200,264,356 known cases around the world. Deaths were sitting at 4,258,693, which means recovered, 180,531,452, which gives us an average global CFR, case fatality rate, of 2%, ranging from a high in Bosnia and Herzegovina of 4.71, down to the lowest I found was Iceland at 0.36. The USA's CFRs 1.75, Australia's 2.64, UK 2.19. Any thoughts on the CFR rate, Trevor?
1: Well, on all of that,
0: where'd you get that from? Where'd you
1: get all these figures from, Cam? Who are you relying on for this data and this information? Uh,
0: there's a number of different sources I go to. There's uh, that, uh, the average rate I'm getting from CEBM, the Center for Evidence Based Medicine at uh, Oxford. They're uh, also using worldofmeters.info. And uh, there's another data source that I'm using, uh COVID source. Uh, don't have it in front of me, but it's it okay. I, I often I often look oh, at our, the site. World, our world in data. Sorry, is that, my other one.org.
1: That's the one I was going to mention. That's the one I have a look at because it's got lots of great graphs. But um, let me just, well, as the advocatus diabolically for the News of Nusa Temple of Satan, um, let me play devil's advocate just for a moment with all that, Ken, because my yep. experience with dealing with deniers would be yep. deaths that. Uh, the statistics on deaths are completely overblown and that uh, if people die with COVID, they are accused of dying of COVID and that in some cases, say in Belgium at one point, if somebody in a nursing home died, then they were just categorised as a COVID death without being properly checked. So some people will say that... Uh, the statistics overstate the death rate. Meanwhile, you could argue that the statistics understate the death rate because say in New York, when it was first blowing up and and going crazy, people were sort of dying in their apartments and and not even getting to a hospital and were ending up in morgues without an actual diagnosis of their condition. So, the figure I would kind of tend to rely on for deaths myself would be comparing the current death rate versus the average death rate of the last five years as a means of trying to weed out all of those sorts of things and arrive at a true death rate because it's pretty hard to judge each country, how it calculates its deaths would be different. Um it's,
0: yeah, a, that's, it's an you're talking about excess, statistic excess mortality rate but yes. the the problem with that approach i think is that because countries not ours in particular but most countries major populations were locked down for many many months 6 12 months in some cases a lot of your excess mortality a lot of your typical mortality rates are going to be way down and in this country, we've reported no deaths from influenza since June of 2020, which some people on Facebook are taking as, oh, look at that, what a great conspiracy theory. What happened to all the flu deaths? Well, it's Well, and if you drill down into what the Australian Medical Association and people are saying, it's, well, yeah, like uh, no one was going outside, they were wearing masks, they were all getting their flu shots. We had a massive spike in, in flu vaccinations this year. Um, so the flu deaths disappeared. The flu disappeared from Australia Mm. because we were in lockdown during winter last year during Mm. our key flu season, and it turns out we're in lockdown for large parts of Australia in this winter as well. Uh, Car accidents are going to be down because uh, people weren't driving, right? So
1: workplace accidents are down, so there's a decrease in all those other sort of deaths um, which might be hidden by that ex- excess mortality figure, but I guess people are really looking at, at the end of the day, how how much worse off is the world in terms of mortality as a re- as a result of of this um, pandemic. So I don't know. Do you have a in figure? terms of, I don't have one on me, but I just I just wanted to sort of say that. Oh, all
0: right. So, so you did what- about as much work as Ray normally does in these things. You, you're bringing it up, but you didn't actually <laughs> you didn't actually come you know packing for bear. <laughs> Uh, correct. Fucking but hell. Am, I, am I the only person who ever does any work for these things? Really? Well, well you
1: know, so so anyway, I'm just pointing it from the point of view of the sort of um, deniers. The first thing they would say is that 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 those death rates that you've just said are are overstated. And but do they have and, any and evidence?
0: Ev- any like yeah? Look, I heard from very early on, uh, particularly in Facebook, people are saying, "Oh, look, this person." you know, had cancer and died mm. and they had COVID, so they said it was a COVID uh, death. Mm. And, I mean, the, the the rationale from the medical authorities that are reporting this is, yes, well, if COVID was in their system and it accelerated the uh, mortality, it made them die earlier than they would have otherwise died from whatever their underlying comorbidity was, then that is counted as a COVID death. If they would have survived another six months without COVID, uh, but COVID killed them off early because it weakened their system, then yes, that's a COVID death. I don't see any problem with that approach. Uh, But uh, people have been saying, well, it's bullshit, but I haven't seen any evidence that that's not the case. Did any of your co-conspirators ever uh, give you any evidence?
1: They'll pick and choose different countries. And and To mind, Belgium was a country which had some strange ways of calculating things. Uh, So the other one you mentioned there in your statistics, Cam, was cases. So how do we know how many cases there are in the world? Because unless you tested everybody, you're really just guessing. Unless you are doing a randomised testing of your population regularly, where you're taking a 1,000 people and just testing them and trying to work it out. If, if you're just basically working on people who present themselves to a medical clinic to get tested, uh, you could be well understating a whole bunch of people who have got it but just have never been tested. So yeah, the- but
0: that's the difference between the CFR and the IFR, right? The CFR is literally cases that we're aware of. Yes. Uh, the IFR is infections, and we're not aware of all of the infections unless we do massive testing for the presence of antibodies.
1: Oh, I see. So the statistic you gave before was cases, known cases.
0: Right. Cases. A- right. The CFR is the case fatality rate. Of known cases, how many die? The right. IFR is the infection fatality rate of infections – but we don't know what that is. We've been guessing, um, all, all along we've been guessing, and I've got some data here, by the way, but I've got, I just Googled some excess mortality stats from our world and data while you were rambling on there. Um, mm-hmm. The US, taking as one case, suffered roughly 360,000 more deaths than the five-year average between the 26th of January and the 3rd of October 2020, compared to 209,000 confirmed COVID-19 deaths during that period. So there's a so, shortfall. The excess mortality
1: figure suggests more people than what the actual death certificate figure gives.
0: Yeah, yep. yeah, mm. which goes ag- goes against it being inflated, right? It suggests it's underinflated, unless those excess deaths are, uh, you know, suicides, increased suicides, or increased uh, domestic violence, or any other kind of violence. And to the best of my knowledge, there's not a lot of data backing up that those things in most geographies have actually increased during lockdowns, but we'll get to that later. Mm. Back in March 2020, when we did our early shows, we believed, based mostly on China and the Diamond Princess, that the CFR was going to be about 3%. So, globally, it's actually been more like 2%, not quite as bad as we thought it was going to be, or a third less bad than we thought it was going to be. But again, it it varies country by country. So, in some cases, it's nearly five. In other cases, it's uh, well below one. Uh, But in Australia, it has been 3%. Australia's been three, 3.2, or 2.64. I've seen various. Uh, suggestions there. I haven't actually calculated it myself. Uh, I saw 2.64, but I think Matt Canavan said yesterday it was more like 3.2. I don't know where he got his numbers from. But let's say roughly 3% for Australia. Back in March, we believed that the IFR, the infection fatality rate, was around 0.6%. The current IFR uh, IFR estimate globally is 0.46%. So, again, not quite as bad, but it's still hard to tell because we obviously don't know. We haven't had enough testing yet to know who's carrying the antibodies and who's not. Now, India, as I mentioned before, is a bit of an interesting case. Um, they recently did a survey of a number of different uh, geographical districts in India, uh, surveyed about 35,000 people, uh, which showed that 71% of them had antibodies when I say surveyed, they tested, tested 35,000 people, found out that 71% of them had antibodies. Now, if you extrapolate that out across the entire population of India, which is probably not a good way to extrapolate this sort of data, but if you did, it would mean that 999 million people, 71% of the entire population, was carrying the antibodies, and yet their death toll is only around about 426,000. That's an IFR of 0.04%. So I've had some people say to me, well, look at India. Like uh, the IFR is well below what we're saying it really is, what's going on there. Have you read much about India? Not about India, but I've heard similar sorts of things about
1: Sweden early on, where there were these allegations of people and herd immunity and these signs that perhaps more people had caught it and were... Asymptomatic, and that it had, that they had reached some early herd immunity sort of threshold because of these testings, this sort of test that you're talking about. I, I don't know enough about it, but the sense I get from it is I don't trust those tests. They, they, they seem to me to be inaccurate and untrustworthy. I don't understand them enough, but. Um, yeah, I, I heard stuff about Sweden but, again, the sources I heard it from I couldn't rely on and it was sort of suggesting they're home and hose now and, of course, they weren't. So that sort of sign that all those people have... What what you're suggesting is those people, because they've got the antibodies, have had the disease and they've been okay. Is that what you're
0: saying? Yeah. Yes. Very low uh, vaccination rates there. Mm. Well... The thing, um, the thing about India is, A, I think these 35,000 people, it's probably not necessarily indicative of the entire population, but the deaths are ramping up. They, their deaths there have doubled in the last three months. Up until three months ago, India was sitting at 200,000 deaths. They're now, now well over 400,000 deaths. So it's ramping up and getting worse. You know, there was a lot of media a few weeks ago about how India was in this new wave and there were going to be millions of dead. It's not quite that bad. At least it's not reported as being that bad yet. But the other thing that I read, and I read a lot of Indian news sources and analysis of this, is that they have a very young population compared Mm. to most Western countries in India. Like 4% of the population is over the age of 65 in Mm. India. Now we know the uh, CFR is a lot lower for um, uh, younger people below the, under the age of sixty-five. Hmm. Um, so one of the th- theories is, well, yeah, they've got a very 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 young population over there, so you would expect the IFR and the CFR to be a lot lower. But we'll drill down more into that um, later on in the show. Back in March 2020, health, U.S. health officials briefed lawmakers in Congress and said they believed that the case fatality rate in the U.S. would most likely be in the range of 1 to 1.0%. Uh, it was a lot worse than they thought. As I said, it's 1.75% so far in the U.S., so again, back in March twenty twenty, operating with very limited data, we didn't really know there were there were models that were extremely wrong on, on both sides, massively inflated predictions, massively underflated <laughs> predictions, and uh, it's sort of somewhere in between.
1: Mm. Uh, if you compare that's, it to the that's flu, the, that's, that's one of the problems with models. Did you see that little note I made about models that? Um, let me just find it here, that basically people who think um, or, or who trust models have never been involved in actually making a model um, because invariably these figures are massaged to try and get a result that people want and like. So um, it's not surprising that the models are inaccurate or, or wildly variant. Mm.
0: Or they're massaged to try and um, force some sort of action. Um yeah. Like the the Sage models that they came out with the UK in the UK early on were they said since then were designed to prompt the UK government Boris Johnson into action mm. and they were they were massively overstated and also I think I've got a quote from Anthony Fauci somewhere here a model is only good as only as good as the assumptions that you put into them mm. right. but to be fair. We were operating with very limited data in March of 2020. It was mostly mm. coming out of China, a little bit out of Italy, a little bit out of the Diamond Princess. We really didn't know what we were dealing with. But that said, even the models that have come out more recently seem to be widely wrong, wildly wrong. So uh, you know it hasn't really improved. Um, but I wanted to compare it to the flu because I still hear people saying, well, it's just like the flu. like it's a bad flu season, really. Mm. Uh, a, a bad seasonal flu season in the United States has a case fatality rate of about 0.1%. COVID so far, as I said before, 1.75%. So much, much worse. 10, nearly you know, 20 times worse than uh, a bad flu season. 1.8 million people die every year in the United States. Normally, COVID in 2020 accounted for a 350,000 deaths, assuming that you don't believe like your former co-hosts do that those deaths aren't really, shouldn't really be attributed to COVID. Um, That would make it the third biggest killer in the US last year behind heart disease and cancer.
1: Yeah, and the other part of all that is in a normal flu season, we're not in a lockdown. So the whole point is if we were doing nothing and we're living life normally, that figure of under COVID would be much, much higher.
0: Much, much higher. Mm. Now, provisional estimates for the US deaths in 2020 suggest that a 17.7% increase in the number of deaths uh, they had compared with 2019. So that's a big increase in the number of deaths in one year. Now, back in March 2020, we said the one problem with COVID was that between countries, the case fatality rates would vary significantly, and um, that has been the case. Um, back then, we were looking at 0.3% in Austria to 12.5% in San Marino, tiny little country in the middle of northern Italy, and it has a lot to do with the median age of the population, but... More on that in a minute. Globally, the first wave peaked in January 21 when we were having 840,000 new cases a day around the world. It dropped down to 264,000 a day in February 21, went back up to 900,000 cases a day in April, then back down to 280,000 in June, and we're currently back up to 667,000 cases a day and climbing. So uh, if you look at some of the numbers, I plucked these out a couple of days ago, new cases for the day were 617,000, USA had 104,000, India 42,000, Iran 39,000, Indonesia 34,000, Brazil 33,000, France 27,000, Turkey 25,000, Russia 22,000, the UK 22,000 and Spain 20,000. These are new cases a day. So it's uh it's getting it's getting worse again. We're mm-hmm. back in that sort of a uh, third wave globally. Yeah, when you
1: see these things on a on a chart, you do see this wave formation where there's these increases, there's these dips, increases, the waves as they're called and Really, they tend to coincide with lockdowns or with uh, weather patterns in terms of summer and winter Um, would be the other major factor, I think. And maybe we'll start to see it now with vaccination rates uh, as bringing these curves down as countries get more more vaccinations. So,
0: yeah. Although vaccinations, it seems to be pretty clear now that the vaccinations don't, as they're not supposed to, prevent you from getting infected you're going to mm. still get infected. You'll still get the flu if you have a flu shot. What we hope is that the in, the severity of the infection will be low enough that your immune system can take care of it, So, which leads me to the deaths stats. So globally, deaths peaked in January 21 at 17,000 new deaths a day. They're currently climbing again, but it's around 10,000 deaths a day. Uh, globally, 10,000 the last time I looked at it. Indonesia was leading the rank with about 1,600 new deaths. Brazil, 1,200. Russia, 800. India, 600. South Africa, 500. USA, 500. Argentina, 400. Iran, 400. Vietnam, just short of 400. And Myanmar, 300. So deaths have actually uh, down. If you look at... Populations that are highly vaccinated, the US and the UK are the two that I mostly look at, have some of the highest vaccination rates. Even though their case numbers are climbing again, their hospitalisation rates are much lower than they were during the other waves and their death rates are a lot lower than they were. So vaccinations seem to be working. Either that or we just killed off the mer- the most vulnerable people in the population the first time around.
1: Well, and also health authorities uh, are figuring out better ways of treating people. So they've, they've yes. developed things within the hospitals where they've figured out uh, how best to treat people. So that's that makes sense as well.
0: Yes. And um, so, you know, I guess at some point we're going to get to a stage where even if we don't get rid of the virus, the the fatality rate will be low enough that we will decide that we just have to live with it and life goes on. Yeah. Mm. Um, what that level is, is going to be determined society by society. So look at the vaccination rates briefly. Um, Globally, 28.6% of the world's population has received at least one dose of a vaccine, and 14.8% are fully vaccinated. 4.21 4.21 billion doses have been administered globally, 38.68 million doses are now being administered every day, but only 1.1% of the people in low-income countries has received one dose. I, um, I watched a, a, a live uh, sort of uh, presentation by the World Health Organization a day or two ago Dr. Tedros, the Director General, and all of his key COVID team giving a presentation. And he was lamenting the fact that something like 88% of the uh, vaccination doses have gone to the rich countries in the world, leaving the most vulnerable populations in the world without vaccines. Now, I know that the rich countries developed the vaccines, and so they want to vaccinate their own populations first, and that makes sense. But, and everyone's been saying this since the beginning of this, and and it's proven to be true, the virus is going to set back developing countries, uh, the progress of developing countries, by decades, by just not only killing off a large percentage of their population, destroying their economies, but also the long-term effects of COVID, which we'll get into later on as well. Got any thoughts on vaccines, Trevor? It seemed
1: early on, just on developing countries, poorer countries, it just seemed that early on they really escaped it initially. Um, You know, places like India, but also um, Pacific Islands, even Africa, uh, while the sort of developed West was really hit hard by covid uh, those areas, it took a while for COVID to actually get in there and get a grip. So there's quite a delay, I think, in 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 how it travelled and and moved around in the in the third world. So, but in in more recent times, I know with places like Fiji and and more, and you just mentioned Myanmar and places like that, they're now unfortunately um, catching up where they had a bit of a slow start to the pandemic. So. Yeah, I mean, they're poor, they're behind the eight ball. Uh, maybe one thing that might work in their favour is, say, with Australia, with our AstraZeneca, we'll have excess supply because people don't want it, they're waiting for the Pfizer and we'll be able to give it away. We're making so much in a panic that we can just give it away and it's in our interest to give it away, of course. So, um, so yeah, and places like China is giving away its Sinopharm and other it's the other vaccine, I can't remember which is the Chinese one, a little bit of Belt and Road diplomacy, um, giving away vaccine to some of these countries to create some goodwill. Uh, it makes sense that we should be doing that. It's it's a fairly cheap form of foreign aid to really create, you know, make up some vaccine and get it to these people. So we should be doing more. It just makes economic sense. It's uh, as from a humanities of view, it makes sense, and uh, it remains to be seen how quickly the West rolls it out and actually gets some um, to these countries.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, I think the AstraZeneca vaccine has a fairly short shelf life. It's got a shelf life of about six months, needs to be stored between two and eight degrees Celsius, and uh, I'm not sure that we've been doing that <laughs> with ours. Mm. We probably dumped it all in the Pacific by now. Mm. Um, no, I'm sure we've got it. Yeah, but it, it's going to be it's going to be uh, tragic. I mean, but of course, one a relatively poor country that's done very well is China. Uh, and um, yeah, at some point, we should drill into why China's done such a great job since that first outbreak in Wuhan. Done an amazing job at containing it in their poor population.
1: Well, generally speaking, the Asian countries did a lot better than the non-Asian countries, and really this will come down to that sort of social contract, social responsibility, the libertarian individualistic sort of view of the Americans, bugger the rest of you, I'll do what I want, whereas there's that more community responsibility sort of viewpoint in the Asian countries that just made them better suited to accepting directions and being considerate of other people in terms of their movement. And they also had the experience from the uh, SARS um, virus as well. So they knew what to do in this situation. But yeah, there's, uh, you know, oh, we'll get into it. I mean, you're talking about various countries and their different death rates and case rates. And there's so much variation in countries in terms of the culture of people and their propensity to that, their lifestyles. their living conditions, uh, that they, these factors play an enormous part in the spread of the virus and people's willingness to to control it. Um, those sort of cultural factors between countries have played a big part, uh, I think, in, in this whole thing. It's been interesting to watch as a sort of study of society project to see how the virus has been, to some extent, a reflection of the mindset of the people of a country. Hmm.
0: Well, back early on, I remember predicting that I thought Australia would do better than the US. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of advantages here, low low population density in some parts of the country and things like that. But, uh, you know, I, I was talking to Ray early on about our healthcare system, generally speaking, and people's attitudes toward the healthcare system here, that it's a, an important public service and not a privilege. Um and but also just our general sense of community here, where we tend to rally together when in times of crisis, we still have that sense of community, it hasn't been corrupted by extreme individualism. Unfortunately, that seems to have been breaking down over the last six months um, in, in, in this country. I think it started in Melbourne and it's been making its way through Sydney and and Brisbane. And I think that's actually being exacerbated by some nefarious uh, entities that are pushing and promoting that kind of stuff too. Uh, But one of the things that I've I've, I've never been able to understand, and I've had debates about this for the last 15 months, I, I see a lot of people saying, well, Australia did better, New Zealand did better, Iceland did better because you're islands and islands are able to better control their borders than a country that has land borders. Mm. I've never really understood that. How much harder is it for the US to control their borders than it is for Australia? It's not like all of the outbreaks in the US are being linked to Mexicans and Canadians sneaking over the border, is it?
1: Well, there's one other factor in that is whether you're a major international hub. So um, so England or Great Britain, an island, um, but Lots of people travel through London, uh, through Heathrow, same with Paris, but uh, Iceland, New Zealand, Australia, it just didn't, it, They, we weren't international hubs with lots of people traveling through from lots of other countries to the same level as New York, Paris, London. So those countries got off to a tough start where because of the movement of people, COVID was able to get a grip in the countries and before they knew it, it was... It, it, they were beyond an eradication as an option whereas our countries being uh, more remote we had the chance so yes we were islands similar to uh, those but we're also just not as important and not enough not as many travelers we had a we had the ability to we had more time we sat back uh, and had about a couple of months uh, to observe what was happening overseas because of just that lack of Uh, international travel, I guess.
0: Are you talking about travel before COVID or after COVID? I'm saying when COVID broke
1: out um, that uh, it was too late to stop and go for eradication in somewhere like America. Like it was in New York and before they knew it, it was, oh, my God, look what's here. Uh, It was because we could observe what happened in New York that we could say, shut down the borders, stop the planes and um, we could we had the benefit of observing that whereas New York didn't have the benefit of observing that in another country.
0: Right but they could have locked down their borders like we did when the outbreak happened stop travelers coming in
1: but by the time you've got 10,000 cases you're gone like it's too late. you can't then eradicate it in your within your borders. It's, it's up and away. Australia yeah, and New Zealand we, and Iceland had at low enough numbers that we could nip it in the bud. but them, it had got too much of a, a toehold.
0: Yeah, you know, I did some stats on this uh, late last year. Um, you know, uh, Australia had about 2.5 million foreign arrivals between January and March 2020. Mm -hmm. which is about 8% of our population. Um, The U.S. had about 20 million foreign arrivals in the same period, which is about 6% of their population. So per capita, we had more foreign arrivals in this country than the U.S. did in the same period. So isn't it all just percentages?
1: No, because uh, where did the travellers come from? Probably for us, most of the travellers came from Asia. Um, China. For the US, most of their travellers probably came from Europe. It's it's really, in this whole thing with COVID, it's really tricky and dangerous to compare countries because their experiences are really different. Grabbing a statistic from one country and then doing a comparison of that statistic with another country is fraught with danger because there are so many geographical and cultural differences between countries. I find the statistics in COVID are really mostly relevant within countries, comparing states, um, for example, um, where you can minimise the number of variables that are going on. But there are so many variables between countries that the particular variable you've chosen to identify and, and isolate and compare is so contaminated by so many other variables that it, it, it almost becomes meaningless to compare across countries.
0: I still don't see what that's got to do with this whole argument that we're an island so we're better off. Well, you
1: were saying that uh, the argument was that Australia and New Zealand were islands and that was their, to their advantage and that's why they were relatively successful. But United States and England are Islands, and why weren't they as successful? No, the United States just, isn't an just, island. UK, is. Well, okay. But you're trying to say that because they're isolated as well, they sh- isolation wasn't the important factor. And I'm trying to say, well, it it, it was. It's just that it's one of the factors, and that we didn't have the factor of being a major international hub which meant that well, we I'm had just an advantage.
0: We we did as a percentage of our population we had more international arrivals here than the US did.
1: Yes, but in terms of pure numbers coming in it's less. Where did they come from? A different type of traveler
0: okay. to what was coming into got, the US? But that's got nothing to do with being an island then. You're that's a completely different argument you're making.
1: I think being an island was an advantage is that
0: yeah, why though? To,
1: to, well, because it is easier for Australia to close its borders than France or Germany. Having talk- ha- so so there, you know, because there's only two ways in here: by boat or by plane. We'll
0: a it's big, it's log, big, big fucking coastline to get in by boat. <laughs> yeah, but it's not easy. You, you try, you try telling Indonesian fishermen border, to, it's Every it's, it's country easy. has border controls, right? You yeah, can't well, just walk across a border. Do, yes. Do they? In Europe? Yes. In Europe yes. you can't just walk across a border?
1: No. In, in France you can't just walk across a paddock and you've moved from Belgium to France?
0: Yeah, you're you not supposed do, to. But if you're walking across a paddock in the middle of nowhere, you mean, you're, you're, you're not probably not supposed, not supposed to. to. You're probably not spreading the virus. Well, they have border controls at the roads. No, they don't. When you're crossing over from one to the other.
1: It's so easy within those countries to cross
0: the border. Okay, we're talking about the US. To go from Canada to the US or Mexico to the US, you can't just walk across easily. True. Right. So the whole argument that Australia did better than the US because we're an island I think is a crock of shit.
1: I'm not saying that's the, that's why anyway, we did
0: better. Well, that's what a lot of people are saying, and I'm saying it's right. never made any sense to me. It's one of the factors. I don't think it's a factor. But anyway, let's move on. We're running out of time. Look, <laughs> I was talking about vaccine levels. There are very, We can get to that later. There are varying levels of vaccine scepticism, obviously, and, and I want to talk about this because I'm a big believer in scepticism in general. I think scepticism is good, question everything. Scepticism is healthy. Um, and, and there is a general skepticism, as there should be, about governments and corporations and science, and that's healthy. But we have to remember, and this is something that I stressed in the book, is that being skeptic, being a skeptic is healthy. Believing an alternative theory or a conspiracy theory to be true when it's not supported by sufficient evidence, is just as bad as being the person spouting the official line of bullshit. Before we believe something to be true, we have to make sure it's supported by sufficient evidence, and not just any evidence, but sufficient evidence to make sure that it is qualified to be the dominant theory. Otherwise, just be agnostic. If you don't believe the ver- the, 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 the official version and you can't find an alternative version with sufficient supporting evidence to make it the dominant theory. Just say, look, I don't know. Be agnostic. You don't have to take a position on things. Uh, people suffer from a lot of cognitive bias where it's very easy. They want to believe something, so they quite they'll pick anything, and then you know use that to back up their particular cognitive. They'll they'll see an email. Uh, or they'll see a Facebook post or they'll see something on Fox News and they'll just accept it holus bolus without being as sceptical about that source as they are towards the mainstream official sources. So I guess my argument is be skepti- be equally sceptical of all sources, not just the ones you don't like. Mm-hmm. Thoughts?
1: I agree. Can't argue with you on that. What are we going to – how is that applying to – and applying that to vaccinations,
0: your – Vaccine scepticism, right. Yes. Yes. Because we're going to talk about, um, over the course of this show, vaccine scepticism. Now, share of people vaccinated against COVID as of August 2nd, 2021. Canada uh, has uh, 59% of the population fully vaccinated. The United Kingdom, 57%, European Union, 49%, United States, 49%, Australia, 15%, Russia, 18%, New Zealand, 15 and China, 16%. Hmm. China, 16 uh, right. Okay. Yes. Australia lagging well and truly behind uh, other Western geographies. Hmm.
1: Um, So so the factors going into that are either the availability of the vaccine in a particular country and then the propensity of the population to actually take it if it is available. Yes. So you could look at that figure and say, gee, those Aussies are vaccine sceptics, aren't they? There's only 15%. The problem is our pathetic government hasn't provided enough vaccine quick enough that uh, we've had queues of people trying to get hold of it. So that's one of the reasons why... Australia's rate is low.
0: So yes. yeah. and the story on that, uh, my understanding is, I haven't drilled down on it in sufficient detail yet, but tell me if I'm wrong. My understanding is the gov our government, the federal government, based all of their vaccine bets on AstraZeneca initially. That was it. They did a deal, they sort of spurned deals from Moderna and Pfizer. Uh, but there and then on top of that we weren't really in a hurry in this country to ramp up because we didn't really have many outbreaks last year and into this year so we were like yeah, yeah there's no hurry yeah, we'll get to, there it was when also, we get to it
1: there was also one being developed in Queensland which was looking really really promising and and i think it actually worked but the problem was it gave a false um a false result for aids because it used some protein or something from AIDS. So they had to kibosh that. So the federal government sort of had thought it's got AstraZeneca or it's going to have this one that, that was being developed uh, in Queensland. And so it got a little bit unlucky, but it was one of those things where you should really cover all your bases and assume the assume the worst, which is what in Great Britain I think... The consensus seems to be that they had some lady in charge of the program there outside the public service who was from private enterprise in charge of getting enough vaccine, and she did a pretty good job of doing that and covered a lot of bases. So, yeah, I think our government uh, can accurately be described as as unlucky but also incompetent.
0: Yeah, with something that is a moving target like this is, developing a new vaccine for a new virus that's shutting down the economy and killing people, you kind of want to have plan A, plan B, plan C and plan D ready to go. You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket which or one and a half baskets, which uh, they seem to have done. In terms of vaccine scepticism, the Melbourne Institute found that 30.8% of Queenslanders are vaccine-hesitant compared with 14.6% of people in New South Wales. Any thoughts on why that would be as a Queenslander, Trev?
1: bunch of hicks up here. Possibly. that's pretty much it.
0: Yeah, a bunch of hicks. Uh, It's the heat. I put it down to the heat. We've also got a lot of happy clapper churches up here which I put down to the heat affecting people's brains as well. Yes. Uh, I literally wrote in my notes, maybe it's because Queensland's had an easier time of things. I mean, New South Wales up until recently had an easier time, but they've been in lockdown now for five or six weeks. Mm. Uh, We've just had our first week of lockdown since, well, we had a three-day burst a while back, but really since, what, June? I think we came out of it in June 2020, the first Mm -hmm. time around. Um, either that, or we've just got more rednecks up here, more bogan's. Don't know, but it's an interesting
1: problem with the anti-vaxxers and free speech. So it gets down to this argument of how much do we allow groups like Sky News or just uh, crazy nutters, be they hairdressers or health food promoters, who are who are giving misleading advice about vaccines. Uh, how much do we let them talk and advertise their ideas, and at what point do we say um, bugger the freedom of speech attitude? This is just dangerous, and and we need to reduce your ability to to disseminate this information, be it on social media, Facebook pages, or your own newspapers, or wherever. So, yeah, there's a real tension between the desire for people to speak. About whatever they want to, freedom of speech, but a real recognition there has to be that this is quite dangerous, the end result. Um, mm-hmm. And there are people who are just almost uh, religious in their defence of free speech and will allow almost any damage to be done to a community mm-hmm. um, on the basis that free speech must be allowed. And I uh, I think they lose sight of the fact that we regulate all sorts of things. You you can't bring a faulty toaster into the country if it's going to short circuit and burn the house down.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and it's a social contract uh, argument again, in, right?
1: Indeed. And there's free speech advocates refuse to to see that. They see slippery slopes of Nazi tyrannical fascism type things or... China and communism—they'll just—they'll grab hold of any sort of um, ideology that they perceive as bad and, and attach it to this restraint of free speech, and it's uh, it's a it's a tricky one of finding the line.
0: And you know, uh, Sky News, Rupert Murdoch's operation, television operation here was blocked on Facebook, I think, for the last week for something mm-hmm. that Alan Jones, uh, uh, for non-Australians, Alan Jones is a. Well-known, extreme, murdoch conservative radio host uh, traditionally in this country. Um, I think Rush uh, Limbaugh
1: sort of thing, Rush yeah. Limbaugh that sort of thing. Yeah.
0: Mm. Extremist, um, nutbag, much beloved by conservatives in this country, allegedly a closeted homosexual. Um but uh if <laughs> I pulled up the other day, you ever see the clip of when he when uh Alan Jones was on know, daytime television or something 15, 20 years ago and he was criticizing Chopper Reed and uh Chopper got on the line and said, oh, Well, right. you know, no one ever caught me with my pants down in a man's <laughs> uh, men's toilet in London like they did you, Alan. So and they cut him, I think it was uh can uh, Kerry, what's her face? Kerry yeah, uh, Ann Kenley or something. Kerry Ann Kenley. I think she cut yeah. him off. Uh, right. <laughs> you got to love Chop, mm. Uncle Chop Chop. He just mm. uh, gave it to Alan Jones. But anyway, um, yeah, look, and, and guys like Alan Jones will, on one hand, argue that he has free speech or should have free speech. On the other hand, I'm sure he has uh, uh, been suing people for defamation, uh, libel and defamation, taking advantage of our libel and defamation laws for decades. Mm. So, uh, they again, they want their cake and they want to be able to eat it too. They want to be able to protect themselves against false claims made against them, but they mm. want the freedom to make false claims to the wider community about things like this. So Yeah. These, these people, it's a bit like your argument before
1: with uh, – the people wanting to march in the street and protest their freedom, not acknowledging that their freedom is restricted all the time. They can't drive at excessive speeds. They can't drive drunk. In fact, they can't drive without a seatbelt. We we restrict their freedoms all the time, and they don't seem to recognise that. And the, the free speech advocates don't recognise it. Free speech is restricted all the time. Defamation laws mean you can't say what you like about people. Um, you... Uh, you know, you can't be negligent even in terms of free speech in advising people. You can be sued for, you know, negligent advice. You can't incite a riot or incite violence. There's lots of, uh, you you know, you can't even say swear words, Cameron, believe it or not, depending on the circumstance and where you happen to be at the time, you,
0: you could be guilty of something. So, Tony and I have just been going through the process of getting our Australian Financial Services licence for our investing podcast for the last couple of months because, you know, we have to be careful about what we say about investing on a podcast.
1: I I think I warned you about that about 18 months ago. (laughs) But anyway, um, so anyway, the free speech advocates just don't acknowledge that free speech is actually restricted all the time and uh, it's just about finding where are you likely to cause real and genuine harm? And then we have to stop you at that point. And I think with Vax, you know, we used to get these sort of pre-COVID days, anti-vaxxers would want to fly in and go around the country holding seminars in Nimbin and Mwilumbar and whatever, encouraging people to um, not take vaccines. And I think most of the audience was made up of uh, footballers' wives and uh, just wags from different areas because they seem to be the ones who are quite heavy on the on the anti-vaxxers or, or maybe Gold Coast hairdressers. It would have been quite a collection of, of misfits or strange ones at those conferences. But I, I sort of thought to myself at the time, these are dangerous people. I just think what they're proposing is dangerous and has crossed the line in terms of free speech. Um, yes. My co-host disagreed with me, but and, we, and that's something you can disagree on. It's, a, it's an area of uh, – it's not a hard and fast and easily defined line, but I think the anti-vaxxers have crossed the line quite often there. Mm.
0: Yeah. Like you don't – it gets back to my original thing about you in the social contract you don't have complete freedoms. You choose to give up some freedoms – in order to take advantage of the benefits of living in a community, living in a society. That's just at, that's just how it is. If you don't like it, I'm sorry. Well, fuck off. Go live in the middle of nowhere. Build a hut out of twigs. Uh, go, go and
1: join Peter Thiel on Libertarian Island. You know, yes. You know, go, yes, that's it. Hmm. For people who don't know, he was the guy behind PayPal and he was looking at creating these like oil rig structures out in the ocean that libertarians could go and live on, and that there would be no taxes, but of course no social security and, and nothing else. And hmm. that seems like a,
0: a very dystopian place.
1: Could you also, imagine the what- guy. Yeah.
0: Also, the guy behind uh, the Intercept funded the Intercept. Glenn Greenwald's yeah. Matt Taibbi's uh, startup originally, which Glenn then left.
1: Right, he
0: was behind that. Right, he funded it. Wow. Mm. So, I think that's the end of this episode. We're ninety minutes in, haven't got into anything yet. I'm about to. You know, the next is talking about lockdowns and do they work? What do okay. we mean by work? But that'll be have to be episode two. I'm Truth.
1: an ex- I'm an expert on lockdowns and whether they work.
0: You want to I'll stick around for of- that episode? Then I do. <laughs> All right.
1: Bullshit.